Welcome to History Talk, the podcast that brings together a panel of experts to discuss current events in historical perspective. I'm your host, Brenna Miller. And I'm your other host, Jessica Blissett. In dramatic protests since August 2016, Native Americans and their allies have gathered on the Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota and throughout the U.S. to protest the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline in an area that will threaten their water supply should the pipeline leak. After months of silence from the Obama administration and clashes with the police, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers announced in December that it would look into alternative routes. The new Trump administration, however, has reversed course. In an executive order issued on his very first week in office, President Trump greenlit pipeline construction, claiming it as a necessary component of the nation's infrastructure and oil security, and a means to create American jobs. Today, we have three panelists to help us tease out the issues at stake in North Dakota and the entangled questions surrounding oil, infrastructure, Native American sovereignty rights, and environmental concerns. Via phone from Indiana State University, we have Dr. David A. Nichols, an associate professor of history specializing in early American and Native American history. Hello. And in the studio, we have with us Christine Ballinger-Morris, a professor at Ohio State University's Arts Administration, Education, and Policy Department, and the American Indian Studies Coordinator for OSU. Hello there. And finally, we also have from Ohio State University, Daniel Rivers, an associate professor specializing in 20th century LGBT communities, Native Americans, history, sexuality, and protest movements. Hello. Thanks for having me today. Thank you to all of you for joining us today. So our first question, David, could you give us a brief overview of the protests over the North Dakota Access Pipeline? Who are the protesters? What exactly are they protesting? And what's the background on the pipeline that we need to know? Well, the Dakota Access Pipeline is an approximately 2,000-kilometer pipeline that connects the Bakken oil fields in western North Dakota to an oil storage center in south-central Illinois. Uh, The pipeline uh, was approved several years ago, and in early 2016, the officials of the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation began to organize a series of direct action protests against its construction uh, in vicinity to that reservation. The core of the protesters are officials and activists from the Standing Rock community, which is most directly threatened by the pipeline. They make the case that the pipeline crosses sovereign land guaranteed to the Sioux Nation by the 1851 Treaty of Fort Laramie, land that they never legitimately ceded to the United States. The pipeline also crosses the Missouri River about half a mile upstream from the Standing Rock Reservation, which threatens the water supply for that reservation and for about 15 million people downstream in the case that it it ruptures. Anything that either of our guests in studio would like to add to that? I would add that you know one of the interesting things about the protests as they emerge in the spring of 2016 is that much of the initiative after the state approval of the pipeline went through uh, uh, on the part of the Standing Rock uh, came from youth. And it was the Native youth among the Standing Rock who organized a, uh, a walk, a relay race actually from from the site to Nebraska in May of 2016 and really energized the protests. 
I would also add that um, since the beginning of this protest, who is protesting has grown as well. And it includes uh, even Vietnam veterans that have come uh, to um, Standing Rock and and actually create a sort of a wall at one point, uh, making making a point um, about the fact of, you know, if it's their country, it's our country, all of us should be concerned based on environmental issues. And also the uh, Standing Rock American Indians, the Sioux, are also very concerned about the fact that some of the land that the pipe will be going through is also a sacred land where there's cultural artifacts. And I think we also have to take that into consideration as well. So with that in mind, has the protest become about more than just a particular pipeline? Does this case symbolize larger issues, and to what extent have the protests tapped into specific questions like sovereignty or climate change? Christine? Well, I really think one of the points is that it's a safety it's a safety issue, uh, environment issues. Um, we are seeing some of the ramifications today of fracking with the increase in um, changes in, say, in Oklahoma, as well as the impact of uh, mountain topping in West Virginia, where the soil and, and mudslides and so on go. I think the question becomes, what happens if there's a leak? What happens to the water? What happens to the people? Uh, my goodness, we're right at the tail end of something uh, that's the catastrophe that's happened in Flint with water. Uh, although they're different in the sense of what we're of of how this is happening, it's what we are doing, and we have choices. And I think that's what's in question at this point. But I also think that it is also an alternative way of thinking about about land and about uh, sovereignty and about promises and contracts that have been made with the American Indians that we also need to take into consideration. United States government has not had a good history when it comes to honoring those particular treaties and contracts. That's right. As David mentioned, several treaties in the Dakotas region signed in a period of U.S. military aggression against the Lakota, the Cheyenne, and the Arapaho in the 1850s and 1860s, uh, predominantly the 1851 and 1868 treaties with the Lakota, guarantee independence and sovereignty over exactly this territory. And I would add that uh, the no-DAPL protests also draw attention to the ways indigenous sovereignty have been threatened additionally by subnational and supranational groups. Uh, regional governments like the state of North Dakota have been deploying their militarized police power against the protesters. North Dakota called on not only many of its county police forces, but also on police assistance from other state governments in order to, as they say, to restore order, actually to, to help break up the protests. Similarly, it shows the ways in which indigenous sovereignty is threatened by supranational groups, uh, such as multinational corporations. Energy transfer partners, in, in this case, is the corporation that is constructing the DAPL pipeline uh, in order to transfer oil from western North Dakota to the rest of the United States. 
is this a pan-Indian issue or a Standing Rock Sioux issue? So what's the history of pan-Indian activism and have we seen alliances like this before? Um, And likewise, is this more of an environmental protest or Native American protest? And can all of this be separated? I I definitely think we have to see this as as a pan-Indian protest. And there's a long history, of course, of pan-Indian resistance. Uh, It's fitting that we discuss this here in Ohio. I think that much of this can be traced back to to a moment in the late 18th, early 19th century uh, when the great Shawnee warrior Tecumseh uh, made a last-ditch effort to prevent settlement that was spreading across uh, Pennsylvania and coming across the Ohio River into this region to push that settlement back and to claim the territory for various Ohio tribes that were here. Uh, this was a central moment of pan-Indian resistance that we can see. Uh, another important moment would be as the Western Wars ended and the final hope of uh, of claiming territory and putting any limit on settlement declined in the 1880s last part of the 19th century, we see a spiritual resistance movement called the Ghost Dance that emerges as a pan-Indian movement from the Great Basin region but spreads east across tribes and west. And then coming out of a moment of of deep crisis for Native American tribes in the United States that is marked by these Western wars and the establishment of non-reservation boarding schools – We see across the 20th century the emergence of various cultural and artistic traditions that we could call pan-Indian. We could use the powwow circuit as one example. Um, And out of this comes a new consciousness of pan-Indian identity and political coalitions. So I think we certainly have to place this in that long tradition and history. As to the second question, what aspects of this are environmental, what are Native American, I think that all of these things are intertwined in really, really crucial ways for us as we move forward and think about political coalition. Um, One important point is the kind of broad-based coalitions that we see here. Groups like Black Lives Matter and Greenpeace have taken part in the protests and provided material support. And I think that that, uh, that gives us a a solid and critical precedent for political action. At the same time, the issues of the environment and the issues of sovereignty can be seen as tied together in that many North American Native tribes held to a, held to various concepts that can be seen as ones of interdependency and a focus on an interdependent relationship between individuals and the ecosystem wherein which they resided. These notions of interdependency, I think, are crucial to the pan-Indian resistance, to the understandings of the importance of the water, and uh, to the issues of sovereignty that would hold to the, the critical nature of indigenous ways of seeing the world in this moment. I would add... For me, what I see is happening is another version of colonization, which gives it the need for that uh, pan-Native coalition, because it speaks to many, many groups that have had in the past and even presently still separate fights. Um, My goodness, you had the copper mining in the Southwest. And you have just recently, you had up in the First Nations, you had the timbering and the mining that was between them and the Canadian government. So this is definitely a North America issue that we share, and that we need to support each other as it progresses. And hopefully there's a win somewhere. I think that's well said, and I would add to Dan's excellent history of pan-Indian activism 
uh, the development also of more nonviolent forms of pan-Indianism, mm -hmm. uh, a sort of nonviolent infrastructure of pan-Indian activism in the early 20th century, uh, first through the establishment of the Native American or Peyote Church, which was uh, always a multi-ethnic organization from its very founding, uh, also through the creation of activist groups like the Society of American Indians in the 19-teens and 20s, and later the American Indian Youth Movement in the 1960s. And then also uh, during the 1940s and 50s and early 60s, Native Americans began to interact on a much more regular basis with Indians from other tribal groups uh, as a consequence of the federal relocation program which encouraged uh, about 100,000 Native people to relocate to cities like Chicago and Denver and place them into fairly close contact with Indians from other national groups they might not otherwise meet. It's out of that particular process that organizations like the American Indian Movement grew by the end of the 1960s. Uh, the AIM was, was uh, not a nonviolent organization, but many of the other pan-Indian activist movements that Native peoples formed in the late 20th century have embraced that nonviolent direct action as a strategy. I do think that's really critical, David. And if we think about the history of nonviolent Native resistance, we see also ties to this understanding of the environment, the importance of sovereignty, both of these things. One good example, I think, is the Fishins of the early 1960s, where tribes of the Pacific Northwest, who had been guaranteed fishing rights uh, by the governor of Washington Territory in the mid-1850s, rights that had never been honored as commercial fishing arose as a very powerful industry in the Puget Sound area, those tribes began pushing back through a series of protests in the 1960s that we know as the fish-ins. These nonviolent protests were centered around sovereignty and treaty rights. They were centered around both a sacred and very important material relationship to the environment. They were met with violent aggression, but by the 1970s, um, they had pushed the courts to recognize those initial treaty rights. That's an excellent example. How does this protest fit into the larger history and patterns of protests and confrontations over similar issues before, and what was their outcome? Well, I would say confrontations with, with whites over land uh, have very rarely gone well. Um, when Indians and European Americans have had disputes over land that have not ended violently. The U.S. government has generally tried to settle them by paying Native American leaders, or those it has identified as leaders, token sums of money or aid uh, in exchange for treaties that represented quit claims on the part of those tribal leaders to large parts of their nation's lands. Uh, the U.S. government did so in its 1851 and 68 treaties with the Sioux, for instance, uh, that Dan previously mentioned. In the 20th century, the Indian Claims Commission, uh, established in 1946, recognized that Indian nations didn't always receive compensation uh, for lands they had ceded. Uh, and over the course of about 30 years, it paid out about $800 million in claims, albeit for several million acres of land. So the the actual uh, payments were relatively small on an acreage basis. Many Indian litigants in those cases wanted to have the lands that had been taken from them returned, but the United States government was not interested in doing so. It simply wanted to quiet the claims through the payment of money. When the Lakotas sought return of the Black Hills of South Dakota in the Claims Commission proceedings, uh, 
they ultimately had to go to federal to other federal courts and eventually got a ruling in their favor in 1980 uh, in which the Supreme Court ruled that the seizure of that territory had been illegal and mandated compensation but the Lakota and Dakota Sioux have su- subsequently refused to take the money because they want the land back they don't want to silence their claim to it Are there any other different conflicts over different kinds of issues in the past, culture or autonomy on reservations? When I think about this, I think one of the important things for students of Native American resistance movements, certainly for my students here at Ohio State, one that surprises them, when we look at Native American resistance movements, certainly since World War II, although groups like uh, the National Congress of American Indians and CAI and the American Indian movement differ widely, as David correctly noted, in terms of tactics. In terms of their goals, they are remarkably similar. Sovereignty and treaty rights um, for Native American nations are fundamental to these post-war Native American movements, no matter which one they may be, so that models of assimilation versus revolutionary or revolutionary versus reform activities don't quite fit Native American post-war resistance movements the same way that they might other movements. And I think that's an important lesson for students of Native American history and activism uh, because it really does foreground the way that many Native Americans see themselves as binational citizens. Certainly, I'm I'm a citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, and I certainly see myself that way. And as such, we are primarily concerned with sovereignty and independence of our nations. You know, and sovereignty is a complicated term that um, that we we use, and it's sometimes viewed as a political place and space, uh, which it is. But it also comes out of spirituality as well as um, a different way of knowing the world. And and so there's different layers to the ideas of sovereignty and philosophy. And I do like to add that it is a it is also a philosophy, a, a way of being in this world. Um, so it really begins with creation stories. Of course, all nations have different creation stories, um, but certainly some of the similarities is the elements, the land and the water, as we have been talking about, and. So it comes to a deep place. It's not only the head, it's in the heart. And as my grandmother would say, some people are right-hearted and wrong-headed, and some <laughs> people are right-headed and wrong-hearted. And uh, you got to figure out which one you want to be in the way that you navigate the world. But it really is about how you see yourself. And one of the, I think for me, the fundamental difference in my growing up and understanding the philosophy in which I was coming up in was that I was not the center of the world. We are all centers of the world. And that's a different way of of looking at our world than a Western view. And I hate to generalize it in saying Western, but I don't know how else to make that statement. But we're, we're certainly not I did not grow up to know and think that I was the center of the world. Um, it was my responsibility to be a part of the world. I think that uh, that um, Christine's point about sovereignty is is a very important one, uh, and I think she's absolutely right that sovereignty is a very uh, complicated term. Uh, scholars would say a very multivalent term for Native Americans. It refers to the rights of people to determine their own collective identity 
who gets to belong to a particular Indian nation and, and how identity gets to be defined. It refers to the ability of a people to preserve continuity with the past, their economic and religious traditions. It refers also to the more modern sense of sovereignty as the right of a people to have some political control over their own destiny and to maintain equal or equitable government-to-government relationships with other sovereigns. In the case of Native Americans, that usually but not always means the U.S. government. So conflicts that Indians uh, enter into with American governments, uh, while they might appear to be economic or religious, uh, are always in some way or other, go back to that ultimate question of maintaining collective identity, maintaining collective uh, autonomy, maintaining collective sovereignty. The current protest seems to be on a much larger scale than other recent protests, Native American protests, attracting many allies and attention across America, from environmentalists to celebrities, and most recently even Malia Obama. There have been other violations of rights before, so why has this protest taken off in the way it has? Well, protests have been an important part of Native American politics since at least the 1960s. Many of them have been regional, and while they have attracted attention from the federal and state governments and from pan-Indian movements such as AIM, they've garnered relatively little attention in the national press. The Wounded Knee Confrontation of 1973 was an important exception, uh, in large part because of the violent tactics used by both sides. I think the no DAPL protests became noteworthy for two reasons having to do with with more recent historical developments. A lot of the attention that was given to the protests was generated by the one-sided violence employed by law enforcement, and I think this elicited a great deal of sympathy from communities uh, like Ferguson, Missouri, and St. Louis, similarly menaced by militarized police, which has become an issue of uh, growing national attention in the last few years. And I think also the no DAPL protests became noteworthy and generated as much attention as they did because of the protesters' skillful use of social media to share their experiences. Uh, Just as the AIM members who occupied Wounded Knee in 1973 uh, were very careful to bring in and carefully to use television news reporters to get their story out, so too the no DAPL protesters have used Twitter and Facebook and other social media platforms to share their experiences and their story uh, and the nature of their protest uh, with a much larger uh, audience than they might otherwise have reached. I also think when I think of the figures that I hear, I think that strikes people, what is it, 38 billion dollars. That's quite a bit of investment, as well as, what is it, 470,000 barrels of oil a day. I can't even imagine what that looks like, and how many states that that will travel, and who will it benefit. And, you know, just listening to um, President Trump just recently Um, We need to be relying on our own resources. Therefore, that's why we just need to finish that pipeline and it will benefit everybody. I think without him really examining the critical issues that, you know, why are people protesting and where is the assurance that the fears 
that people have won't happen. And of course, we know that they can't really promise that there will not be a catastrophe or a leak in the water. They can't promise that. And so those things are still, you know, obviously simmering, um, which is causing a very politically charged climate in South Dakota. That's right. I think both David and Christine bring up really critical points. And just to underline the fear that exists in the minds of so many people about these pipelines that have actually been in the news since uh, at least 2010 when the original Keystone Pipeline was approved, not the XL increase of the pipeline, but the original Keystone Pipeline, that the Lakota also opposed and that they lost that opposition for. And when the Keystone Pipeline was constructed, um, they were assured that the the maintenance would be sufficient to prevent any leaks. But in actuality, from 2010 to 2016, 15 leaks of that Keystone Pipeline have occurred, five of them in South Dakota. In the most recent, in April of 2016, more than 16,000 gallons of oil was spilled 10 to 12 feet under Sioux lands. So I think the gap between the assurances that these energy companies have been giving um, now for for really quite a long time and the reality of what happens on the ground has really contributed and plugged into a deep and widespread fear of negligence on the part of corporations over critical environmental issues. Any final thoughts? What might be of concern now at the moment to those who support the DAPL protest, or no DAPL protest, and those who are taking part in it, is how things are going to change with the new administration. And that raises the question of which agencies in government have jurisdiction over Native American rights and over land use and over the ability to uh, continue the construction of pipelines like DAPL. Now, Congress has had plenary power, as it's called, over law and government on Native American land since 1885. But since the 1930s, it has ceded uh, a fair number of those powers by statute to elected tribal governments, uh, beginning with the 1934 Indian Reorganization Act. Uh, It is possible that in a new administration uh, and with a not quite new Congress, but certainly one that that now has the support of a president of the same party, that some of those rights may be eroded by statute. What is more likely, I think, is that there will be pressure placed by the new executive upon the Army Corps of Engineers, which I believe either owns or or has considerable authority over the lands which the pipeline crosses adjacent to the Standing Rock Reservation, uh, to Uh, clear the way and to uh, speed the process uh, of constructing the pipeline near Standing Rock. Uh, And also possibly that the new president might endeavor to use federal law enforcement assets to support and reinforce uh, the state police who are already on the ground in South Dakota. We'll wrap it up on that note. Thank you to our three panelists. David Nichols is an associate professor of history at Indiana State University. Christine Ballinger Morris, American Indian Studies Coordinator at Ohio State University. And Daniel Rivers is an associate professor at Ohio State University. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, see David Nichols' new article from Origins, Treaties and Sovereign Performances from Westphalia to Standing Rock. 
Thanks, everyone. This episode of History Talk Podcast was brought to you by Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective, an online publication of the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center and the History Department at The Ohio State University in Columbus and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Our main editors are Stephen Kahn and Nicholas Breifogel. Our executive producer is David Stately, and our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Brenna Miller and Jessica Blissett. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcasts and more on our website, origins.osu.edu, on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.